Right, good morning. Um, I am going to speak this morning about the story of Esther, but first I just wanted to share a couple of snapshots from our family holiday with you. So um, here's the first one. There we are. So this is the Hearst family on holiday. Um, our daughter Becky had the idea that we could go to TK Maxx and each select an outfit for an, another member of the family. LAUGHTER uh, the theme yellow. Timothy likes that idea. Theme of yellow. So Becky chose this particularly fetching men's swimming trunks for me. And um, the shop assistant got really into it. She asked if she could help, if she could take a photo. And as far as we all knew, that was the end of it. We put the clothes back on the rack, carried on with our lives. However, later on, Adrian revealed that whilst he was waiting for the rest of us to come out of the changing rooms, he took a selfie, which looks like this. <laughs> Um, we don't know why, uh, but there it is. So I want to share those with you because the story of Esther is really odd. Largely, there's not any humour in what I'm going to say for the next half hour. So if you're feeling it's a bit heavy and weighty, just think of that. Okay. So having said that, um, let me just tell you the plan. So I'm going to make couple of really quick comments to introduce the story. They've actually got a video summary of the events of the book of Esther and then um, what we can learn from this book of the Bible. Because I've been preparing for this, I just said to Sarah, I've actually got 15 points I wanted to share with you. I've cut them down to seven, might only get through three. There's so much that we can learn from this book of the Bible. Can I really encourage you to go away and read it and read it and read it? There's so much in there. So that's the rough plan. So just quickly by way of introduction, um, it's always really good to ask when and where a Bible story takes place. So the story of Esther takes place in the Asian Persian city of Susa, round about the years 480 to 460 before Christ. And then the book was written a little bit after that, about 400 BC. So the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, the book of Esther is actually anonymous, but it seems most likely it was written by Jewish exiles um, in order to equip God's people who were living as strangers in a strange land. How do we cope with life outside of the promised land? So we're going to watch a video from the Bible Project now. This gives an overview of the whole story. If you want to look at this video again later, you can just hop onto YouTube and type in the Bible Project Esther. It's worth a second or third watch because it's quite fast paced. So I will let you enjoy this and then come on to my millions of points that I wanted to share. Thanks. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. And the main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way, 
It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But Approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. 
and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part. Not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story's not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral examples, as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we began, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess 
and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish its purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. Brilliant, thank you. Um, could you just put the next slide up? Thank you. So um, I'm just going to repeat what the guy said at the end of the video. The book of Esther shows us God can and does work in the mess and moral ambiguity of human history. He uses the faithfulness of imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. And then it asks us, are we willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working? Do we dare to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is faithful and he is committed to redeeming his world? It strikes me that this is very relevant given the state of the world today. Um, so in a moment, I am going to... Um, share my thoughts on Esther with you. Um, but I wonder if you could just put up the next the photo. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to be honest with you guys um, and, and start really by saying that I'm feeling like a bit of a mess this morning. The last couple of weeks have been difficult and I've absolutely felt the messiness and the imperfection of my own heart. Um, I've been really horrible to my family. Most of them are here. They can testifies to that. Um, in fact, I felt like impaling them on posts at various points this week. <laughs> I'm guessing that feeling is mutual. Um, so I went for a walk yesterday to pray because I was even saying, God, I don't think I can speak in church on a Sunday. I'm, you know, I'm awful. Um, and I felt prompted to walk along a particular pathway. I didn't want to walk that way, but I felt God say I should. And just as I was praying about my wretchedness, how awful I felt, I emerged from a path and saw this view and I just felt like God remind me of that lovely song we sing, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. So I want to offer you what I've prepared this morning, trusting the Lord will take what I've prepared and ignore my wretchedness and hopefully offer you some treasure. Okay, so... Uh, first lesson from Esther is that God works in and through all things. At the very start of the story, the king throws a lavish banquet. We're told it goes on for six months and there is no limit to the drinking. I just want you to imagine that for a moment. If I go out with my colleagues, after six minutes of unlimited drinking, there's chaos. Six months, it was debauched. The whole purpose was for him to show off. Then he wanted to bring his wife in and show her off, for her to be ogled at. Um, then he's furious. And that's all really bit distasteful. It's unpleasant. It's an uncomfortable read, the book of Esther. Um, and yet, God uses those circumstances, that immorality, to open the door for Esther, this unknown peasant girl, to rise to the throne and become the instrument of God's deliverance. So we can see that God's at work, even in the greed and the pride and the lust of the king. Esther chapter 1 teaches us to take the long view of God's providence, to wait and trust that with hindsight, we will one day understand what God was up to. It's a lesson asking us, will you rest in the goodness of God, even in the darkest of days, the most overwhelming suffering, the depth of grief? Um, Thinking about this, I was reminded of something my father-in-law, Mike Hurst, often says 
anything goes wrong, he says, all part of the rich tapestry of life. You probably, if you've ever met him, you know he says that. Um, and I hope there's an image of a tapestry here. Yes, so here's a tapestry seen from behind. Anybody care to guess what it is? Oh, Mike. Mike's ruined it. It's guessed immediately. I thought it looked like a loaf of bread, maybe. Anyway, it's messy, isn't it? Everything's muddily. Um, there are lots of loose ends. It doesn't look very good. And then if we go to the next slide, royal crown. Um, Corrie Ten Boom made this, just passing thought. Anyway, could, could you go back to the one before, please, just for a sec? I think most of the time life looks like that, doesn't it? Mine does. And we have to trust, Esther teaches us to trust that somewhere in the midst of all of that, God is working for the other side. He's working all things together for order and beauty. Some of those things we won't see this side of eternity. But the story of Esther asks us to trust that he knows what he's doing. Um, this opening of the book also invites us to look forward to a better king and a new kingdom. Unlike King Xerxes in this story, Jesus is a king who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life. He's the king crowned with thorns. He's the king who founded his empire on a cross. He's the king who calls us to come to him. I totally sympathize with Vashti not going in to see King Xerxes, very wise woman, I think. But Jesus isn't like that. He's a much better king. And um, he invites us with grace and mercy and hope. He is the king in whose rule we can rest. He is the husband in whose love we can trust. He's the sovereign in whose power we can take refuge. So my question is, will we be like Vashti and refuse to come to the king? Or will we gladly and daily come to Jesus, trusting that he is the very best kind of king? Okay, I want to move on now. I'm going to talk about a fairly painful part of Esther's experience, um, which is in chapter 2. So if you're following along in the Bible, please do turn to chapter 2, but the verses will come up here. It's often misrepresented as a kind of Cinderella story. Esther wins a beauty pageant and wins the heart of the king. That's not really what the text says. Interestingly, um, Christian scholars tend to adhere to that view, but Jewish scholars are a little bit more honest about how awful her situation is. I'm just going to read out um, just about 10 verses from chapter 2. It says this. After Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti, what she had done, and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. It's not a beauty pageant, guys. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they're all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? So he put this plan into effect. Next slide, please. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. This is a really basic comprehension question. Did Esther choose to go there? No. Like all the other marriageable teenagers in the 127 provinces over which he ruled, she was forced to go to Susa 
taken against her will. Next slide, please. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months of special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to King's Palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewellery she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms. The next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. Okay, we can read between the lines and understand what has occurred here. It's not a beauty pageant. There, she would be under the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. So even after the king has taken these young women and spent the night with them and used them for his pleasure, they're not free. They can't go home back to their families and their lives. They are stuck in harem number two unless he calls them back. That, that's their future. Um, I think there's one more side on this, isn't there? Thanks. The bit that we tend to zone in on says, the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. But this is the part, I think I've mentioned this already, even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, i.e. after he spent the night with each and every one of them, and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. So she remains scared. So I think it's just important, and I'll explain why in a minute, that we don't gloss over this. I understand why children's Bibles need to say she won a beauty pageant, but the vast majority of us in this room are adult followers of the Lord, and we need to be realistic about the horrors of that situation. So first of all, she is brought to the fortress at Susa against her will, along with hundreds of others. They are groomed for 12 months. The king has her for one night, and then she's transferred to the second harem where she stays forever as his possession. So the backdrop for Esther's selection is this exploitation of every maiden from all of the king's provinces, we're told from India to Ethiopia. This is really, really uncomfortable. When I talked this over with Adrian, he kept wincing. He said, do you really have to zone in on this? I said, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> And I think it's there because the Lord doesn't flinch from the simple and ugly facts of life in ancient Persia, where people were treated as commodities. And the Lord doesn't flinch from the real world that we live in now and our sufferings. Esther chapter 2 shows us that God is the God of the real world. And I think for some of us here, that fact alone is really important because it shows us God's word speaks to the extremes of our experience He's not confounded when unthinkable things happen to us. He's not silent when tragedy and sorrow and sin break us. We don't have to be silenced by shame. The dark things that we think we can't share are named in his word by the God of wisdom and love and hope. The God who has a word for both the abuser and the abused, for the cynic and the naive. His gospel is a real is a real-world gospel that works in the darkest reality of our lives. So Esther, in chapter 2, is really bleak, and yet it offers this, this hope. Lesson number 3. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, it offers us this hope that he knows our suffering and that we can trust him. 
Will we trust him with those darkest and most difficult and most shameful parts of our lives that we think are too awful even to name? Because he can name them. They're described in his word. Okay, moving on, I think. Yes, lesson four. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. The book of Esther sets up these contrasts brilliantly. We've got Xerxes, glory and riches and power, and then Esther is very picture of weakness. She's an orphan, she's a Jew, she's a woman, which at that time indicated weakness. It's calculated to place her firmly on the margins. She's outcast. She's abducted. She's forced into a life she didn't choose. She has no power and no influence. And yet, it is her that God chooses to accomplish salvation. How is the kingdom of God built? Not often by the mighty, the noble, and the strong. More often by the weak and the broken and the hurting. Um, In fact, it's here that Esther preaches the gospel to us. It's here that her story reminds of Jesus, the Lord of glory, who was stripped and beaten and crucified. Although he was rich, he became poor, so that we could become rich through his poverty. Jesus redeems and saves and builds his church by his cross. And the story of Esther reminds us that God uses the very, very weakest of us for the greatest works. And my question there is simply this. How convinced are you that God really does want to use you? In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and answer that, or ask them if it's too uncomfortable. Just, put, just talk to each other for a minute. Just consider that. Would you like to come back together? Thank you. I really hope that some of you will be able to take some of these questions away and give them some thought. Questions get harder, but I might throw a joke in soon because everyone looks a bit depressed. <laughs> Actually, where's Adrian? Adrian forgot this joke last week. When's the first tennis match in the Bible? When Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. Ah. It's quite funny. Okay, right, back to heavy stuff. Lesson five, Esther teaches us when we keep our eyes on the end, we can find a way to bear suffering. At the end of chapter two, you'll be pleased to know actually, Esther's got ten chapters, but I'm only going up to chapter four. Okay, so the end of chapter two, Mordecai overhears that there's been a plot to kill King Xerxes, then he gets a message to Esther, and together they're able to prevent that assassination. So they save the king. So that incident of Esther and Mordecai saving the king kind of foreshadows how they're going to then save the whole of the Jewish race, which foreshadows how Jesus is going to save the whole of mankind. Um, and we're given that glimpse, the end of the story, it gives us some hope. And it just occurred to me that we can find hope for our own struggles by keeping our eyes on the end. We know, we know the end, don't, don't we? 
We know we have present sufferings, but the Bible tells us they're nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. Esther's story reminds us that, that God has already told us the whole story, the big story, the whole universe, the whole of human history. The lamb who was slain is the lion of the tribe of Judah who, who reigns over all. We've been bought with the blood of the cross by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Yes, there's a conflict, there's a clash within our own hearts, holiness, sin, righteousness, wickedness, suffering, pain. But we know the ending, it's already been won. Christ has died and risen, and one day he will bring the battle to its end. The new heavens, the new earth will come, and the Lamb will wipe away every tear. We know that's our ending. And my question around that is, how good are we, are we at fixing our eyes on the ending and encouraging one another to do so? I think, I think I'm quite good at sitting in suffering with other people saying, oh, that's quite difficult. I'm sorry to hear that. But I don't know how good I am, actually, at saying, but remember, what we see in front of us is a tiny part of the whole story. I wonder if we can choose together to remember that when life feels like it's unravelling, that God is that master craftsman working together that wonderful tapestry that one day will be flipped over and we'll see the beautiful picture of what he's been up to. Lesson six. We need to know our true identity and purpose. I'm thinking here about chapter four, which is probably the most well-known bit of Esther's story, where Mordecai asks Esther, please will you go and speak to the king and appeal to him on behalf of the Jewish people? I think we can learn something from Esther and something from Mordecai here. So first of all, Esther, initially she is afraid. She replies that it's illegal for her to approach the king, and he hasn't even requested to see her for over a month. She will literally be risking her life if she kind of wanders in and tries to see him, and she's scared. Mordecai's response is really uncomfortable, another uncomfortable bit of the story. He says, don't think you'll escape any more than any other Jews. And I think what we can take from that is how he's calling out her true identity. She's one of God's people, but she's been keeping that hidden up until now. But when all the Jews are going to be killed, she can't hide that anymore. He's asking her, who are you associating with? And for some of us, I think that's a relevant question. Who are you? Who are you? Who, what do people who know you say about you? Who do you associate with? He also asks her the question, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's the sort of really well-known verse, isn't it, from the Bible? It's as though he's saying, look at your own history, Esther. Look at the steps that got you here. Haven't you asked yourself through all that suffering, what's the point of this? Could it be that the point of everything you endured, all your suffering, all your sorrow, could have been to lead you to this place? You are uniquely placed. No one else can do this. It's a good question for us as well, isn't it? What has God brought me to this place for now? Why here? Why in this bit of history, in this postcode, in this, um, these relationships I have, in this church? What am I here for? Um, why has God brought me here? And who has he made me to be in his wisdom? I'm not going to ask you to turn and talk to each other about those questions, but maybe they're things you can take away with you and consider um, Esther's response is a very quick turnaround from fear to bravery. She gives that solid answer. Okay, yep, yeah, I'm in. I'll go to him. If I perish, I perish. I'll put everything on the line. Um, 
When we know our identity and our purpose, then we can give ourselves fully to the things God's called us to. We can echo that bravery. We can throw ourselves in saying, if I perish, I perish. I gave everything for what I believed God was calling me to do. And finally, lesson seven. I mean, I could go up to 15, but I'm not going to. Lesson seven comes from Mordecai. Um, He teaches us that divine sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. When Esther says she can't go to the king, Mordecai replies with unshakable hope. He says relief and deliverance will arise from another place. He knows that God will save his people. He rests secure in the sovereign faithfulness of the covenant-keeping God whose promises will not fail. Mordecai knows in his heart that the Lord reigns over Haman's wicked heart, King Xerxes' corrupt power, and Esther's fear in that moment. He knows that the same God rules the destiny of his people and has promised to deliver them. This is the truth of divine sovereignty. It's a refuge in which to rest secure, a safe harbor for our faith when we feel wobbled. Mordecai knows that God, because he is Lord over all things, utterly, comprehensively, exhaustively sovereign, will not, he cannot fail to keep his promises. It's not possible. Relief and deliverance will come. The sovereignty and faithfulness of God is the medicine we need for our fear and our anxiety. And I say our, including myself in that massively. Our lives rest in the hands of the God of infinite faithfulness, goodness and grace. And yet still, Mordecai provokes her, he prompts her. He he says, you have a responsibility. Perhaps you've been called for such a time as this. And I think it's interesting that he wants her to take responsibility, yet ultimate responsibility lies with God. There's a danger, isn't there, that if we start to take on responsibility for things, we think, oh, it's all on me. I'm indispensable. Without me, the kingdom of God can't progress. Um, we begin to minimize the Lord and think of ourselves as a vital cog in the machine. And so my final kind of provocative questions for us are are these, are you more prone to fear that God isn't trustworthy, he won't come through, he won't turn up? Or are you more prone to believe that everything rests on you and you're indispensable and you can't rest and you can't let anyone down? Or like me, you're prone to both of those, sometimes at the same time. There's something else to go away and think about. So just to sum up, um, even though we're full of mess and brokenness and shame and sin, we're surrounded by challenges, We can be confident in the prevailing purposes of God. We can be assured, like Mordecai was, that deliverance and relief for God's people will arise. In spite of the corruption around us, the sin within us, we can live good lives. We learn the very last verse of the book of Esther that Mordecai continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. So let's this week go forward into Birmingham working for the good of our city, and speaking up for the welfare of its people. Why don't we stand? I think Lucy's served us so well, so well, in a short amount of time, in a context where we've got a family service. I feel really challenged and really encouraged by the sovereign goodness of God in our individual lives and how we're invited into his plans and purposes.
as Ephesians 2 says, he prepares in advance good works for us to walk in. And yet life is often very messy, as Lucy has so clearly pointed out. And that mess is not beyond God's gracious intention for the world. In fact, somehow he's going to turn everything around to make all things new. So why don't we pray now as we respond to this? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Lucy. I want to thank you that she speaks words that sometimes we are too afraid to say as we confront our own brokenness. And yet I thank you that into that brokenness, the gospel speaks such hope, not just for us as individuals, not just for us as a community, but for the world which you have made, Lord. Thank you that, Jesus, because of you, because of the work of the cross, we are those who are reconciled to the Father and have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which is be reconciled. It's already been done. Enter into what the Lord has already done. And so I pray as we go out now from this place, will we be people who, through our actions and our words, speak of the reconciliation that has happened because of you. Help us not to turn our face away from darkness when we see the brokenness and the corruptness of the world, but to stare it down, speaking of the light of the goodness of God, that we might see that goodness outworked in every area of society. And I pray, Jesus, would you cause us to keep our eyes fixed, not so much on ourselves, but on you. You are the one in whom our hope is found. Help us to rest in your sovereignty and to take responsibility in the assurance that you will do what you've set out to do. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.